Revelation chapter 1. In particular this evening we're going to be studying verses 4 to 8. Verses 4 to 8. And our theme this evening is a greeting from God. A greeting from God. Long ago in the great city of Ephesus, God's people met together for worship one Lord's day. And their pastor stood up and declared, I have in my hand a personal letter to our congregation from the Lord Jesus Christ. A little further down the road, another pastor said the same thing in the city of Smyrna and another in Pergamum and four other churches in the land of Turkey as well. They all received a letter personally addressed to their congregation from the Lord Jesus Christ. There was something in particular for each of those seven churches and we'll be seeing what that was, God willing, in the weeks ahead. And you might think, how exciting would that have been? Surely it would have been a full house that particular weekend. And surely you would have heard a pin drop in the room as the pastor unrolled the scroll and everyone waited to hear, what is Jesus going to say to our church? And yet, whilst you won't find the name Dromor anywhere in the book of Revelation, Revelation is also a letter to Dromor RP Church and to every other church in the world, past, present and future. Just look at chapter 1 verse 4. It says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Seven churches. The thing is that we know for a fact that there were more than seven churches in the province of Asia, now the land of Turkey, at that time. There were more than seven. Some of them are mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, The church at Colossae, for example, was in Asia and there were others as well. But the reason that Revelation is addressed to seven churches is because seven is a number symbolizing completeness. Seven churches represent all churches. And this is backed up by what Jesus says to them in chapters 2 and 3. At the end of every individual bit for each individual church, Jesus finishes by saying, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, not just to Ephesus or to Smyrna or the rest, but he says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to all churches, including our church today. And so, friends, as we delve into our studies in Revelation, I may be saying each week, please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation. But it would be just as appropriate for me to say, please listen carefully to what Jesus has to say to Dremore Reformed Presbyterian Church. Revelation is a letter from Jesus to us. And today we're just going to consider the greeting of this letter in verses 4 to 8. Letters in the ancient world generally began in the same way. The author's name, the people that he or she was writing to, and then a greeting. But of course, the greeting at the beginning of Revelation is special and unique because it's a a greeting from God to his people, the church. And so three things about this greeting to highlight to you this evening. First of all, this greeting declares a blessing from God's throne. This greeting declares a blessing from God's throne. Just look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you 
and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now John is straining the rules of grammar here to breaking point. But he's doing so to emphasise to us that God is eternal. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are eternal. When John says there, him who is and who was and who is to come. He seems to be echoing the description that God made of himself to Moses. In Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses at the burning bush, I am who I am. And God said similar things throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 41.4, I, the Lord, the first uh, and the last, I am he. And this is God's way of emphasizing that he is eternal and he is in control. It's emphasized again at the end of the greeting in verse 8. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, the most widely spoken language in the world at that time. It's a way of saying God comes first, God comes last, and he is everywhere in between. He's in control. He's eternal. And there's good reason for perhaps thinking that although everything I've just said is true of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All of them are eternal and in control. But there's a hint here of the Trinity in this greeting. And perhaps John has in mind particularly God the Father when he says him who is and who was and who is to come. Because having mentioned that, John goes on there to mention God the Holy Spirit. If you look on ahead in verse 4, He says that this greeting also comes from the seven spirits who are before God's throne. Most commentators would suggest that that's a description of God, the Holy Spirit. Again, seven refers to perfection. What he's saying here by saying seven spirits, he's saying that the Holy Spirit is perfect in his power, perfect in his sovereign knowledge of all things. A perfect source of power for the church. In Old Testament times, oil had to be poured into lamps in the temple to keep the lamps of the temple shining at all times. Likewise, friends, the Holy Spirit is the fuel that keeps the witness of the church shining in the world today. A car can't run without fuel, a lamp can't stay alight without fuel. And likewise, the church needs the power and help of the Holy Spirit to keep our witness going in this world. The Holy Spirit is is no bit part player in the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God. And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19 that if we're Christians, God the Holy Spirit dwells within each one of us. We are each one of us temples of the Holy Spirit. He's the one whose power and help we need To live our daily lives as Christians. So John greets the churches in the name of God the Father and God the Spirit. And of course in the name of God the Son Jesus Christ. We'll think more about him in a few moments. But what exactly do God the Father, the Spirit and the Son have to say to the church by way of greeting? Well verse 4 again. Grace to you and peace. 
grace to you and peace. This greeting, friends, is a declaration of blessing from God's throne. Grace and peace sum up the Christian life. Grace and peace are what we need from God as human beings. As Christians, they are what we already have from God. And they are all that we will ever need from God in the future. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's the unearned, undeserved love of God for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Offering himself up on the cross graciously. And peace is the result of Jesus' work on the cross. There is now peace between us and God. We're no longer his enemies. We're his friends. We can enjoy a relationship with him. We can live in obedience to him. And friends, this is how the seven churches in Asia and all churches today who read the words of Revelation, this is how God greets us. He greets us with grace and peace. And what a blessing that must have been for the tired, battered, small little churches of Asia in 95 AD to hear. Their congregations are small. The world is becoming increasingly hostile. The world just doesn't understand and is becoming suspicious of the message and behaviour of Christians. And their God and Saviour writes them a letter and says, Grace to you and peace. From the one who is in full control. I know you and I love you. And my grace and peace will be enough for you. Whatever happens in future. I wonder is that quite simply the reminder that you need to hear this evening. At the beginning of a new week. This past year for all of us. Things have felt out of control. We're desperate, aren't we now, for some normality. We're longing to get back to familiar routines and interactions with each other. Maybe we've been anxious about our family, our church family, our church witness. Maybe we're frustrated at how over-dependent our society seems to be on government and advisors and the government trying to fix and solve everything and give us all the answers. If you can relate to any of that this evening, friends, just listen to what God says. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The Almighty. There's nothing out of his control. One writer says, confidence in God's sovereign guidance gives courage to stand strong. In the face of difficulties. Confidence in God's sovereign guidance. Gives courage to stand strong. In the face of difficulties. And that goes for whatever your difficulties may be. God cares about them. No matter how small or unimportant they might seem to others. God knows about them and God cares about them. There is grace and peace for you. In your parenting challenges. There is grace and peace for you in running your business. There is grace and peace for you in enduring your illness or taking a stand for your faith in your workplace. There will be grace and peace for us in our local witness here in Dremore. 
And as well as grace and peace, there is power. Power from God, the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits before the throne of God. Power to obey, power to resist sin and pressure, power to courageously witness when the opportunity arises. Grace, peace and power. John Newton famously wrote, Grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. The eternal, unchangeable, all-powerful God greets his church this evening, friends, no matter how small, frustrated or anxious we may be. And he says to us, grace to you and peace. So this blessing, this greeting rather, declares a blessing from God's throne. But secondly, this greeting celebrates the work of God's Son. This greeting celebrates the work of God's Son. And we'll spend most of the rest of our time thinking about this. This greeting celebrates the work of God's Son. Verse 5 tells us that this greeting from God is also from Jesus Christ. And usually in the New Testament when the Trinity is mentioned, it's God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. But in this case, John leaves the Son to the last because he's going to now focus much more of his time on him. The grace and peace that we've just thought about are provided for us. They are channeled to us, if you like, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And notice John now develops that more. And notice three descriptions of Jesus that John gives us here. First of all, he describes Jesus as the faithful witness. The faithful witness. This is verse 5. The word witness there in the original Greek, it's actually where we get our word today, martyr. Martyr, someone who dies for what they believe. So many of the first believers in the early church ended up being martyrs. The apostles and their followers, they gave their lives For the gospel that they believed and preached. And as the churches of Asia begin to realise that they might have to do the same. John reminds them here in the greeting. Jesus Christ has done it. Jesus Christ has remained faithful. When tempted to sin and go with the crowds and become king of a mob. Jesus Christ remained perfectly faithful. (coughs) When threatened with death and Beaten by the Roman soldiers and mocked by the Jewish crowds. He didn't strike back or shrink back. He was perfectly faithful. And that's the challenge that John lays down here for the churches. Will you be faithful? Like your your saviour Jesus was faithful. He is the faithful witness that we are to imitate. And then also John describes him as the firstborn of the dead. Again, verse 5, the firstborn of the dead. Jesus has defeated death. It's what we proclaim every week. Some Christians are looking forward to proclaiming it, particularly on Easter Sunday, as it's so called. But it's what we're supposed to proclaim every Lord's Day. It's why we call it the Lord's Day. It's the day of our risen Lord. And Jesus Christ is the firstborn of the dead. He's the first one to live and to die and to then rise and stay alive forevermore. And that title, firstborn, it implies that there is more to come. 
Some of you are beginning to notice the first flowers of spring appearing in your gardens. It's a sign that there will eventually be more. And what Jesus has achieved in rising from death, all of us who believe in him by faith will also experience. We too will rise again from death. This is spoken of in Psalm 89 verses 27 to 29. Quite possibly a language that Revelation is borrowing here. Psalm 89 verse 27. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. <coughs> my steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. So there's a prophecy in Psalm 89 about Jesus being the firstborn from the dead. And the psalm goes on to say, I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. So Jesus is the firstborn, but God says there are going to be more. There's going to be offspring. Jesus didn't have any biological offspring, of course, but he has spiritual offspring. His, his people, the church, all those who believe in him by faith and who like him will rise from death. At the end. So Jesus is the faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead. And then lastly, John describes him as the ruler of the kings on earth. Again, verse 5 the ruler of kings on earth. And again, this title emphasizes the position that Jesus now is in. As we thought about earlier in Psalm 2, he is the king. Of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. And one writer says that this also includes Jesus ruling not just over human nations but over the, the forces of Satan that often lie behind and empower vast portions of our nations. We're going to see this a lot more as we make our way through Revelation, but it's a book that shows us the spiritual warfare that is taking place. In the world today. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 6 verse 19. How we, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against spiritual forces. That are at work in our world. Where does the notion come from. That Northern Ireland needs to have the funding. And the capability to put to death. Up to 6,000 unborn babies every year. That's a notion that comes from the pit of hell. And in that way and in so many other ways we see Satan at work. The spiritual forces of hell at work in our world. But Jesus rules over them. They have a certain amount of influence and sway now. But the day will come when Jesus Christ will destroy it all. And again the churches to whom Revelation is addressed. were beginning to feel the pressure of the spiritual forces of the world they lived in. Piling in on top of them. The pressure was growing in the days in which Revelation was first written. For people to be worshipping the Roman Emperor. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is God. Was becoming the creed of many. Caesar is not Lord John says. Jesus is Lord. No matter how powerful or influential. The rulers of our world. Or the celebrities. Or the humanists. Or the. Uh, the lobbyists of our world may, may be, friends. Jesus is Lord. He is the ruler, recognized or not, of all the nations of the earth. 
So Jesus is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn of the dead and he is the ruler of the kings on earth. In many ways those titles sound and they are high and lofty. Here is someone of unique power and stature and grandeur and glory. And yet John goes on here in verse 5, friends, to speak of how personal and how loving and how, how this great king has entered into our lives and established a relationship with us. Look at verse 5 again, the end of verse 5. He says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom Priests to his God and Father. <coughs> to him who loves us. It means he has loved us. He does love us. He will always love us. It was that love that sent Christ to the cross. It's that love that gives us grace and peace and power even today. Do you know with full assurance that the ruler of the kings of earth is your saviour? That he loves you. That he has died in your place for your sin. You don't just need a vaccine. You don't just need to get out of lockdown. Or to get the job. Or to get a holiday. You need the love of Jesus Christ. Which frees you from your sins. He says that Jesus has made us a kingdom. And priests to God our father. That's Old Testament language. That's how God described the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 19. He said you are a kingdom and priests. And now that language is applied and fulfilled in the age that we live in. In the age of the church. We are part of Christ's kingdom and we are all of us priests. What did priests do in the Old Testament? They served God's people and they entered into God's presence. The priests were allowed to go in on specific limited occasions into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or temple where God's presence dwelt. They had access into the place of God's presence through the blood of sacrifices. And friends, what John is saying to us today is that through the blood of Jesus Christ, you and I have access into the very presence of God our Father into the throne room of heaven itself. We have access. We are loved. We are welcomed into the presence of Almighty God. There's a famous photograph taken in the Oval Office, the President's office in the White House. President Kennedy is sitting at his desk, very busy, on the phone, advisors all around him, the seat of power. But under his desk, sitting on top of his feet, is his little son, John Jr. You see, no matter how important the president is or how few people might have access to the Oval Office, his son always had access, right up into his father's throne, so to speak. And through the faithful witness the firstborn of the ruler, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, friends, we have access to the throne of heaven itself. This is what Jesus Christ has provided for us by his life and death and resurrection. 
by his perfect redeeming blood. Grace and peace to you from him who was and who is and who is to come. And through Jesus Christ, the firstborn, the ruler of kings on earth. Maybe we wish that we had better access to our government in these days. Maybe we wish we could tell them more clearly and loudly, this is what the Bible says. This is why you shouldn't bring in laws to, to make it easier for people to put unborn babies to death. This is why you shouldn't have changed laws regarding what marriage is and who gets married. This is why the Lord's Day is worthy of respect in law. We can make every effort to make those things clear to our government, but we often feel like we don't have the access that we need. Friends, we have access to the throne that is above every parliament, every government, every palace on earth. We have access into the throne room of God himself. We are welcomed in because of the work of Jesus Christ. May that spur us on in our prayers. May that spur us on in our daily petitions. And when we grow anxious and frustrated and afraid, may we remember the access that Jesus Christ has given us to God our Father. So this greeting declares a blessing from God's throne. It celebrates the work of God's Son. But thirdly and finally and more briefly, it promises the return of God's Son. This greeting promises the return of God's Son. Look at verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Verse 7 is a good example of how Revelation uh, borrows so heavily and references the Old Testament so clearly. There are actually two Old Testament references in this one verse. Excuse me. Uh, First of all, it's referencing Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, which we read earlier. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And John here says he is coming with the clouds. And then John says that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of earth will wail. And that's a reference from Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. It's almost a, a direct word-for-word word quote. But you might be wondering, well, what does, what does that mean? What does Zechariah mean and what does Revelation mean when it says all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Jesus? Will we really all wail? Surely it's only going to be Jesus' enemies who will be wailing and weeping when he returns and gnashing their teeth because of the judgment that Jesus will bring against them. Well, of course, those who refuse to repent of their sins will be left weeping and wailing when Jesus does finally return. But friends, to become a Christian also involves a degree of mourning and weeping. To be a Christian is to realize with deep gratitude and humility that Jesus Christ was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded For our iniquities, the judgment that you and I deserve for our sin, he took in our place. And you can't become a Christian if you have never felt heartbroken and truly sorry 
for your sin. To be a Christian is to hate your sin, to hate the thought of it, to hate the mess that it's made, to hate the sorrow and displeasure that it brings to a holy God. But to be a Christian is also to know the love of God's faithful witness, Jesus Christ, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To be a Christian is to believe the scriptures when they tell us that Jesus Christ is coming back. To be a Christian is to be ready for that moment by repenting, turning from sin and trusting in him and his redeeming blood. Have you wailed and mourned over your sin? Have you cried out for forgiveness of your sin? Are you ready for the return of Jesus? Your sin is going to leave you wailing at some point. The only question is when. Will you have wailed and mourned over your sin in this life now in repentance? Or will you not be wailing until the moment that Jesus returns and executes judgment upon you and you wail in bitterness as that judgment rains down upon you? Revelation chapter 9 vividly describes Jesus executing judgment on the earth. And remarkably in Revelation 9 verse 21 we're told that even then in that moment there will be sinners who do not repent. It will be too late. The moment has come. Their fate is sealed. And the only tears they will weep will be tears of bitterness and hardness of heart. But today it's not too late. Today Jesus Christ greets you with grace and peace. He is the one who frees sinners from sins. He is the one who loves us. He is the firstborn of the dead. And the one in ultimate control of our world and everyone in it. Today he offers you grace. Do not harden your heart. Do not think you can put it off. Don't think that you'll get to it later. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. This is what God says to Dromore Reformed Presbyterian Church and to all who listen in this evening. May we pay attention to it. May we mourn our sin, but may we trust with joy and delight in the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we, like him, seek to be faithful witnesses. Amen.